Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Just as an argument's value can be assessed by examining its premise, in Scripture and in life, an individual character's action or statement can be understood by identifying its reference. By reference, we mean literally the thing you refer to as the basis of your authority to speak and take action. When Jesus teaches in the temple, what is his reference? When the crowds threaten him, what is their reference? When all the disciples left Jesus and fled, what was their reference? When Peter entered in and sat down with the Lord's enemies, what was his reference? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 55 to 58. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 404 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the great things about preaching scripture is that all you have to do is say what the Bible says. And when they come for you, all you have to say is, I'm not making this stuff up. It says it right here someone was frustrated that I was explaining that Peter was the arch nemesis of Paul. And my response was, you were sitting with me when we read Galatians. <laughs> with whom are we upset? That's what the text says. Now, where do we go from here? I don't know. But I get the feeling from the Gospel of Matthew that we are not the first teachers to experience this phenomenon after having spoken what the Father set down in words divinely inscribed. I remember one time a friend of mine's mom was talking about how I'm not just a Christian, I'm a disciple. That meant that she was really dedicated. It meant that she was really doing the right thing. And as we've been studying Matthew, those words keep ringing in my head because when I read about the disciples, people who consider themselves disciples in the gospel, they're not terribly impressive. So making that claim, ironically, shows ignorance of the very text that is being read when one hears Matthew. I also was hearing from another person recently, well, you know, the Bible is important, of course, but God reveals himself in different ways with different people. And I didn't say it out loud, but I thought, God doesn't do that, but gods do that. 
gods reveal themselves in all different ways, in all different texts. I mean, you know, you might have a god who reveals to you that you should have chocolate ice cream instead of vanilla ice cream. I don't know if that was the creator of the heavens and the earth. I'm guessing not, because I don't read anything in scripture about ice cream at all, whether it be chocolate or vanilla. So I think that when we are interested in what God says— we actually are putting the cart before the horse. We have to see what Scripture says in order to understand what God says, because it's only within Scripture that God is speaking. And when God speaks about Peter, he's not a good guy. When Matthew is writing about Peter, Peter is not a sympathetic character. And when Jesus talks about Peter, he's not a very loyal disciple. So the name Peter, which theologians have made so much about the fact that he was the rock, by the time you get to chapter 26 of Matthew, which is only the first book of the New Testament, you're going to read a lot more about Peter for the next several books, you realize that the name is ironic, or at best, it's Peter, the stony ground on whom the seed fell, sprouted up, and when the sun got hot, just shriveled away. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. I was teaching. I was simply explaining to you what the Bible says. I've been teaching the Torah in the temple. So the intro was a kind of double whammy because we've been dealing with Peter, but we're also making the point that we're only telling you what the text says about Peter. And that's how Jesus is talking here. I've been teaching you the whole time, and now suddenly you're coming to arrest me? <laughs> it's probably because you're finally starting to realize that the judgment in Scripture is upon you in the temple. You thought I was talking about what? The Romans? You finally figured out that it's against Jerusalem, and now you're coming to seize me? You finally got a clue? It's as though they're just realizing what Scripture is saying, and they're realizing not only that it's not good news for them, and here I'm going to go <laughs> a little further and say it's not just news, <laughs> it's bad news for them, what Scripture is saying, what he's been teaching openly. And that's why they are coming to deal with him as a robber. They're coming with clubs. And that's the funny thing. They want to see themselves in the Gospel of Matthew as being better than the prostitute and the thief. And when a teacher shows them that they are worse than the prostitute and the thief, or the tax collector, remember Matthew is a tax collector, what do they do with the teacher? They come out to beat him to death as though he were the prostitute and the thief. They're treating Jesus like the criminal. Because that's what the self-righteous do. 
Remember, we've talked about this over and over again over the years on this program, Richard, that those of us who imagine that we are something, who imagine that we are holy, who imagine that because of our beautiful vestments and our sweet-smelling fragrances that are condemned, as you explained in your beautiful book on Hosea, we're condemned. Our worship is offensive to the Lord because we delude ourselves and we imagine that we are better than the prostitute. So therefore, God doesn't want our worship. He wants mercy, not sacrifice. And Matthew picks up on that theme. When a teacher comes in the midst of the temple and explains this teaching to us, we have a choice. We can accept that we're no better than the prostitute, or we can turn on the teacher and expiate the shame of our own harlotry by going after him with clubs and sticks as though he is the one who is the thief and the prostitute. And it's unfolding before our eyes. And all Jesus did, he didn't make anything up. He didn't give his opinion. He didn't theologize. He just explained what was written. It's not my fault or your fault, Rich, that Peter betrayed Paul. You didn't decide what Matthew wrote in his gospel, that Peter turned his back on the Christ. We didn't make that up. It's written. What more do you want? And in this case, the thief, the image of the thief, reminds me of when Jesus was talking about the reason why the slave has to stay awake during the night because the thief might come and try to sneak in. And it's up to the slave to keep watch, because you never know when the thief is going to come. Now, this is a funny twist in this case, because you didn't need to be a slave. Don't forget, these are the slaves of the high priest who are coming after him. They didn't have to stay awake at all. They didn't have to do anything. The thief was just hanging around all this time. <laughs> if you want to think of Jesus the thief, he's just been there. He was sitting around in the living room, he was walking around outside. He was going on a stroll in front of your house. You don't have to wait in secret to pounce on him. He's hanging around all the time. But for the thief to do his work, the thief needs darkness. The thief needs to be stealthy so that other people don't see him. So, Jesus is turning the tables because who are the people who have to do what they could have done during the middle of the day at night? It's the slaves of the high priest. So if the slaves of the high priest, in order to do their duty, have to do it at night when nobody is watching, and Jesus is willing to do all of his work in the middle of the day, who's the thief? Who's acting stealthy? Who's a little bit suspicious here? They're acting like Jesus is the thief, but in fact, they are the ones who are coming to grab him, to take him, to capture him in the middle of the night with their swords and their staffs. But who is the one who's acting according to the teaching? But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So if anyone had doubts that they were all betrayers, the deal is sealed in verse 56. Let me just 
take a moment of silence and try to hear our listeners squirm out of this one. Explain to me how they were not all betrayers when they all fled when their teacher was seized by the Ochlos. Explain to me how they were loyal to him when they all ran like chickens, literally. I'm listening. Is this apophatic theology, Richard, if we just sit quietly and no one says anything? What can we learn from the silence? This is obvious betrayal. And I love this point that you stress all the time that this has taken place to fulfill as in to make sure that everybody gets the point that the words of the prophets are not empty. The judgment of the Lord is pregnant with his power. It is bad news for Jerusalem. It is bad news for Israel that the twelve are cowards. And the judgment for their cowardice is coming upon Israel's anointed. And the only hope is that the only one who can be merciful, it doesn't matter if Jesus is merciful. Jesus has no power in this situation, obviously. The only hope is that the one who has the power to be merciful, the one who is on high, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope is that he decides to be merciful towards his Christ. But right now, it doesn't look good for Jesus. It's a very ominous text. Not only does it not look good for Jesus, Father, but this is the second time that he said that the scriptures must be fulfilled. He just said it in verse 54, after his own person cut off one of the ears of the slaves of the high priest. Twice Jesus said this, and don't forget, we've been saying over and over again for how many episodes during this very high-tension scene, Jesus won't stop teaching. Jesus won't stop teaching. And so the reference point, when his own disciple cuts off an ear, his own reference point when they're coming with swords to come against him with swords and clubs, is the scriptures. The scriptures are being fulfilled. This is not about him, Jesus is saying. This is about the scriptures being fulfilled. And I think this is really important, that Jesus does not make himself the reference point. He doesn't say that this is all done so that the Son of Man might be taken. No, he doesn't say that. He says that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So the first time it's the scriptures in verse 54, and in 56 that it's the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Because, as you said, Father, they're coming like thieves in the night to come after the one who is teaching this teaching. It reminds me of Psalm 2, that the kings of the earth gather together and the princes of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The words of the prophets are being fulfilled. As you said, Father, they're pregnant. They have weight to them. They have substance to them because it's happening at this moment. You can see the words of the prophets unfolding before your eyes. And I'm happy that you brought up Hosea as well because the 
problem in Hosea is you have all these people who believe that they're worshiping Yahweh, and they're in their actions worshiping Baal. And these disciples who respect and follow Jesus, in fact, respect and follow the sword of Caesar. They aren't caring about their business as if the sword of Caesar meant nothing to them. They're acting actually like Jesus means nothing to them. And the teaching that Jesus teaches means nothing to them. The fact that the scripture is being fulfilled before their eyes. They don't wonder now, you know, all these times when Jesus has been performing miracles, all the crowds wonder, the disciples wonder. But here, now that they're actually seeing the scriptures fulfilled, they're not wondering. They're running away because, boy, like you said at the very beginning, Father, when you actually hear the words of scripture and listen to what they're saying, they themselves can be terrifying and sad and angering. But we have to confront however we feel about them with listening and internalizing the words because it's the words that are the reference point. And here... In the next verse, it's as though Matthew, all those centuries ago, wanted you to know, Richard, that you were right. (laughs) And that I was right, too, that this is about referentiality. Because we just explained that Jesus isn't the reference. His father is the reference. Or more specifically, The words that his father committed to the scroll are the reference in the situation. What do we hear in verse 57 about all these guys who are excited about their sword that Jesus just told them to put away? Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. And I emphasized the high priest, Archierevs, because there is only one who is in the heights, and there is only one high priest, and it's not this guy. Christ is our high priest, as we know from Paul's letter to the Hebrews after the order of Melchizedek in Genesis, which means that the reference for Christ's authority isn't from an earthly line. Because Melchizedek's power didn't come from an earthly priesthood. That's his function in Genesis. That's not being said here in Matthew, but it's a helpful example to bring to illustrate the point that there is a tension here between a human reference and a divine reference. It's a repetitive tension in Scripture. Jesus pertains to the divine reference, to his Father. These guys pertain to the temple, the high priest, the temple, and the Jerusalem that was just overcome in Matthew, and the scribes and the elders, and just to make it absolutely clear, and religious scholars who are defending their religious institutions get excited, and they write new translations of the Bible to emphasize this, which means the joke is on them. Yishak. They want to point out that it doesn't say elders, Father Mark. It says presviteros, which is a priesthood. They want to explain that there's some kind of a precedent for the priestly tradition in the Greek church or the Latin church. 
because their preoccupation is not the gospel, it's their argument with their Protestant brothers and sisters, trying to prove who's the true what. When Matthew is telling you that your archpriest and your priest and your copyist, copying the Rama, all of them are setting themselves against the throne of God in order to murder the Christ. And you're trying to explain how they're the basis for your priesthood, and you're excited about the fact that the word elder should say priest, and how your priesthood is based on their priesthood. The joke is on you. You don't know the law or the prophets, so you can't hear Matthew. It's a serious problem, Richard, because all of us are institution builders. The joke is on us. I'm happy you brought up my commentary on Hosea. I spent a lot of time talking about that because the main problem of the Israelites is that they're not doing the right thing. They're not following Scripture because the priests have focused on sacrifices rather than teach Scripture. And here we can see those who know Scripture, the scribes, and the elders who should know wisdom are subservient to the high priest. The high priest is supposed to be subservient to Scripture, as all three of those groups should be. But instead, the high priest is about earthly power and is subservient to Caesar. It is once again the standoff between Scripture and Caesar, between the creator of the heavens and the earth and the king of the earth. When one has to decide between these two, one looks a lot scarier than the other, but one sounds a lot scarier than the other. The one who sounds a lot scarier is the Lord. Just read Ezekiel, read Hosea. You see how bad it can get. But when they see the sword, those disciples, they flee. So when we understand that to follow our basic biological fear of the sword, running into the hands to placate Caesar, we can't square that with God. We can't square that with Scripture. Because Jesus himself in spite of himself, chose not to fear the sword, but to fear only his father. And the only thing that he was focused on, the only reference point for his actions, was that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So may we all have actions that fulfill scripture rather than fear the kings and queens and rulers and priests and elders of this world. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. I have heard people rationalize this verse and theologize this verse to say things like, this shows that Peter loved the Lord more than the others because he was closer. No. This just means Peter wanted to get the gossip. Peter was interested in the outcome. The fact that Peter wanted to see what happened to Jesus does not mean he cared more about Jesus. It means he cared more about the outcome. Whether or not he cared more about the implication of the outcome for his own skin or not remains to be seen. If he cared about Jesus, he wouldn't be hiding in the shadows and remain hiding in the shadows. So let's finish the Gospel of Matthew to see what happens with Peter.
but also, even now he's at a distance. And where is he sitting? In the courtyard of the enemy of God, the high priest. In the Gospel of Matthew, the high priest is presented as an enemy of God the Father, who is positioning himself to gain favor with the earthly powers, specifically with Caesar, by opposing the Father's earthly representative, Jesus Christ, and ultimately being party to and ensuring the execution of Jesus Christ to gain favor with Caesar. Peter's going to sit in the courtyard of this person. Now, you want to say, oh, that's just where he sat, Father Mark. That's because you haven't figured out that the Bible is literature. I can't help you. But what I hear in Matthew is that he went to sit in the courtyard of the opponent of Jesus Christ and the enemy of God the Father. And he entered into that courtyard and sat down with the officers, those who are officiating, facilitating, enabling, overseeing the execution of Jesus Christ. That's where he's sitting. That's who he's keeping company with in order to see the outcome. You think that's by chance? Why mention it? Why not just say that Peter was afraid and he was keeping watch but staying back so he wouldn't get caught? That's not what Matthew said. Matthew reiterated which courtyard of which characters and whom he sat with and that he entered in. Pay attention. It's literature. Another detail that I couldn't help but notice is that he was paying attention until the end. He really wanted to see the end. And I thought, shoot, this is the Peter that Jesus had to keep waking up. When Jesus wanted Peter to be awake and paying attention, Peter couldn't do it. But now Peter seems to be motivated for some reason to want to stay awake and watch what happens. One thing that I always find unintuitive probably for Americans, probably most human beings, but I think especially among Americans, is that we confuse the difference between what we want to do and our duty. We do it because we're asked, not because we asked and we happen to like doing it. No, you just do it because you're asked. I had a conversation yesterday with some folks I'm doing a Bible study with, and they said, you know, we'd love to have you keep teaching our Bible study, Dr. Benton, but we don't want to take advantage of you. But, you know, we can tell you're obviously passionate about it. And so, you know, we thought you'd probably keep doing it. And I said, I am passionate about it, but that's not what the point is. I had the opportunity and the blessing to study scripture in Hebrew for 10 years. And after that, I couldn't just stop because I stopped having fun. The blessing wasn't something that just made my heart feel nice and warm. The blessing was that now I have this teaching to teach others. Like this Ojibwe man that I like to read, Anton Troyer, his teacher taught him, when you learn one thing in Ojibwe, teach it to four more people. If all the things that I learned in my PhD program, I taught to four more people, I would be, in Scripture's term, a wicked, unworthy servant who only did what was asked of him. I don't keep watch and teach Scripture because I enjoy it. I keep watch and teach Scripture because it's my duty. This is what was asked of Peter. Peter was not asked to hang around and watch the end 
that was going to happen. But he was asked to stay awake, and he couldn't do it. So here we have Peter with these officers following the will of the high priest. Everyone hears about the will of the high priest, and Peter just happens to be with them and happens to be looking and acting like them. If it sounds like a duck and looks like a duck, it might be a duck. It just might be a duck. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.